Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I have the great pleasure of welcoming Brian Moloney as my guest. Brian is the CEO and founder of Storm Harvester, a leading company in smart drainage systems and more. This week, we will cover one of these garage ventures that made Silicon Valley's legend, except that it started in Australia and went through the roof in Ireland. Actually, Brian will tell us how a simple, sturdy, yet brilliant concept could have saved Queensland's three billion pound worth of infrastructure damage and how hyper-local weather forecasts and existing network sensors make for a perfect combination if you leverage them cleverly. He'll tell us how and why machine learning outperforms modeling and how it can save utilities tremendous money by preventing sewer blockages long before they happen. In our conversation, we also address how better rainwater management is an opportunity for grey water reuse and landscaping, how actuation of networks might be the next frontier, or the pro and cons of cloud solutions versus on-premise. Add to the pot Brian's vision, Storm Harvester's mission, and the role that venture capital plays in the water industry, and you still haven't it all covered. So I'd better let you take off for this week's episode, but right before, I'll ask you for a little hand to help increase the water and wastewater awareness. For that, please share this episode with at least two people, and from now on, with anyone that you'll ever see throwing a wet wipe in the toilets. Do it, share it, and we're all set right after this. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. So hi, Brian. Welcome to the show. Hi, Antoine. How are you doing? Well, very good. And you? <laughs> good, good. Let me start with a postcard, actually. It's the first time I have the pleasure to welcome someone from Ireland. So you're in Belfast right now. What can you tell me that would be crispy about Belfast? Well, it's actually a, quite a nice day here today. It's um, 12 to 15 degrees, which is unseasonable for us. So the window is open here a little bit and I can actually see the sun coming in for the first time this year. So it's a, a beautiful environment to be doing the podcast from. So I hope you have no hard feelings. You know, I'm French. You're in Ireland. I think for the first time since a decade, France won against Ireland in rugby. So I hope you don't mind if I brag a bit. No, it's quite <laughs> all right. We'll give you this one. We'll be back again next year. It's, let's say, very probable. <laughs> so let's go to the matter. Actually, I was uh, looking at your path and I was noticing that you, you started up in, um, let's say, hardcore engineering, civil engineering, hydraulic, environmental engineering, and now you're more on the cloud artificial intelligence. So that's kind of a, a transition from hard to soft, from far. But can you guide us through your steps? 
Yeah, so um, I think it all goes back, I suppose, at the start to my university days. So I went to Trinity College in Dublin, and actually I did a course that allowed us to study different disciplines of engineering. So I studied both civil engineering and also some software engineering for the first number of years, and then specialized into the area of civil engineering and drainage and hydraulic modeling and everything associated with that. But it gave me a good broad understanding for the initial years of the software and and the building of software and how that might be applied to stormwater and wastewater drainage networks. So I think it it all started maybe back then and then it developed then um, through my time in Australia was really where it came to the forefront then. Actually, your times in Australia, according to what I read on your website, it's the the time and place where you had your aha moment, which led you to uh, creating actually your company, Storm Harvester. Can you tell us something about this aha moment first, that we understand that one, and then Can you explain me how you have this aha moment down under and you create your company in the UK? Yeah, absolutely. I suppose I was graduated in Ireland as a civil engineer and started to work initially in drainage. But very quickly, uh, we fell into 2006 and 2007, 2008 in the global recession. So in, in that instance, there was quite a lot of work happening in Australia around engineering and civil engineering. So I decided to go for my career and to move to Australia. I actually started living outside of Brisbane in Queensland. And it was just 2009 when I sort of moved over here and, and started to get established. Only a couple of months when I'd been living there, there was a, a huge catastrophic event called the Queensland floods, where there was three billion pounds worth of damage done to the infrastructure of Queensland. And I was living in Queensland at this time outside of Brisbane. So one of the things that struck me when I was there, the flood wasn't just a one day event. It happened over the course of about a month. It was continued high rainfall, which would come intermittently every couple of days. But the thing that really confused me is that we knew the rainfall was coming a day or two in advance because we could see from the accurate local forecast information that they had in Australia at the time. But we couldn't do anything about it as engineers. At the time, I was working as a drainage engineer for a local council in Australia. And what we used to do is essentially we would go around to all the housing developments and we would ask all the individuals in the housing developments, could they please empty any of their storm tanks or their rainwater harvesting tanks like a day before the big rainfall would come? And I just thought, as an engineer, this was crazy. Such a reactive way to try and solve a problem of trying to mitigate the first impacts of the heavy rainfall. So it was actually around the same time in Australia when I got my first iPhone. And I couldn't understand how there could be so much technology in this little device. And then our infrastructure, which is the thing that protects us against these real environmental catastrophes, is so reactive. Literally everything in the stormwater and the drainage networks in Australia and every country in the world was the same at this time was reactive. So something would happen and then the drainage network would react. To me, it just seemed so silly that you would have infrastructure there when you have technology available in the world that you could have this really clever predictive Uh, drainage network and it would be able to see the rainfall that was coming in the coming days. It could understand what that would mean for a pumping station in a sewer network or for a flood tank or a reservoir and we could drop levels. And it just seemed that there was such a lack of use of technology in civil engineering 
compared to how other industries had developed, like oil and gas, and other other industries had raced ahead, embracing the Internet of Things and different technologies, subsequently machine learning. So that was really where it came from. It was just, so the story was when we were working as part of the council, we were going out and we were actually manually knocking on a door and asking somebody, can you empty your flood tank tonight or your rainwater harvesting tank tonight because there's a big rainfall event coming tomorrow. So I started to work in my garage and actually built a little device that was a little, really basic Internet of Things connected device that would open and close a small valve based on, first of all, an automatic command that I could give it a remote command. I linked that up to a web portal where I could then open and close the valve from the web portal. And I suggested to the council, instead of us actually going around and manually opening the valves, why don't we issue these valves to everybody? And then we can do that remotely from the control center. And then once we got that idea embedded, I started to explore the idea of, okay, why don't we automatically link these valves to a forecast platform, which would allow us to actually drain down the tank remotely if we knew there was one of these big storm events coming. And they happen regularly. You know, that one in 2011 was a particularly serious rainfall event. But in Australia, it's such a seasonal climate. In parts of Queensland, they get this heavy rainfall every year or something similar. So so this was a repeated problem that they had, but they had no technology solution for it. So really the first, the first, it wasn't even a company. At that stage, it was just developing a solution to solve a problem that I saw in the market. And it was just to help out the council that I was working with. It wasn't necessarily to try and go and really push a commercialization or anything like that. But that was really the first instance. It was seeing all this other technology that could affect and that could help us and we weren't using it. So that was the genesis of the idea. So you were scratching your own itches, which is probably the best way to come out with something. But that was still in Queensland and uh, you brought that back with you. To Dublin or to, Dub to, to Belfast? Where did you come back and why did you come back? To Belfast, yeah. So I was working there and we were getting a lot of success with that project. But ultimately, once the recession had sort of started to ease and, and construction had started back in Ireland, there was a need for engineers back in Ireland again. So from Australia, I contacted the university, Queen's University in Belfast, And we started with doing a, a remote project initially, and then I moved over to do a closer project with the university as they were very interested in this type of technology and how it could be applied. And, and we started to get some students doing final year projects. And then we've ultimately developed out into a, a student doing a PhD ultimately on this type of solution. So really, there was a strong interest from Queen's University to help me develop the concept. And, and they saw the potential there was for these type of solutions. And then, you know, just a desire to, to <laughs> a personal desire to come closer to home. So that means that your original product or the original service you were bringing is your stormwater solution that you have today still in portfolio. So that was the origin of the company. Is it still the hurt of what you do today? Because you also have the other part, which is linked to the networks. So what is, do you have a preferred child? That's a difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, don't, I don't think we have a preferred child. So that, that product, is a, it's been quite a successful product with us now. And we've got lots of installations of that product around the UK. We've got a really strong partnership with the company Waven. And we're using Waven flood tanks to install these smart valves 
around different projects around Europe. And some of those projects are fascinating, fascinating applications of this new smart technology, really, really optimizing what we can do with stormwater networks. What we started to look at then was that, you know, we're doing this at localized flood tanks. We're helping municipalities to, to manage their flood tanks or their storm tanks. We started to look at the utilities and how could technologies like this assist water utilities. So we started to look at drainage networks that might have some infiltration or might have some stormwater coming into them. We started to look at wastewater networks and the influence of stormwater on wastewater networks. And what we found is that certain situations, the wastewater network, the flow could increase 10 to 20 times during periods of high rainfall on certain areas of combined sewers. So we said this predictive system that we had built to link infrastructure to the weather forecast, it had to be useful also to utilities because they have a lot of the same problems with their infrastructure being very reactive. So we started to look at that and we found when we went to talk to utilities that they already had sensors installed all over their pipe networks at pumping stations and at CSO points combined to overflow locations. And they already had a network of sensors but everything was still reacting. So we started to bring that predictive and smart technology into the utilities and applying that in various different ways, anywhere where we see an opportunity to improve the performance of the drainage network using our predictive technology is something we're going to be interested in helping a utility to do. Let's deconstruct that. There's two elements here, which I find very interesting. The first, and we'll conclude with the first, so it's a do it reverse. But the first is, you mentioned that there are already... A lot of sensors in place on the networks. And I was wondering if that's the case on all the networks or if that's really the advanced utility that has all these sensors. And the second is this element of the forecast. Because as an outsider, let's say, for me, really for the stupid, I have no clue about how you might program all of that. And I might think that to start with, I wouldn't start with hyperlocal weather forecast. I would do a, a sturdy, simple thing that might eventually work at 5% of, of its potential, but just to do a proof of concept. But apparently you had it embedded from the very beginning. So it was part of your, let's use the big names, of your minimum viable product to have this hyperlocal weather forecast. How easy is it? Does it sound much more complicated than what it really is? Because to me, that sounds really like, like complex. Um, it is, and it can be very complex, but you can simplify it as well in the description and how you explain it. So the hyperlocal forecast information is absolutely critical to drainage networks. So it's, it has to be a key component of what we do. So we've upskilled ourselves and we've upskilled all of our professionals that are working with us in understanding the different forecasts that are out there, what the abilities of different forecast providers are, how we can get this forecast information into the correct format, how we can use it, and then how we critically, how we can link it to different points around the drainage network. So If you take, for example, a sewer network, so take the city that you're in. If you look at the sewer network of the city that you're in, there is no point in us predicting that there is going to be rainfall across the entire city for a couple of hours. So say we're going to get 10 mil of rainfall tonight and then it will be gone tomorrow across the whole city. To have benefit, we have to know exactly what's coming at exactly what part of the city at what time. So then we can start to do something really smart and move the water around or the stormwater or slow it down. A really good analogy I like to put out there for it is, could you imagine driving into your city tonight if there was no traffic lights anywhere? It would be chaos. Everybody wouldn't know at what junction to move and how to travel around. 
That's what the drainage networks are below our city at the moment. There's no smarts. There's no predictive in there. So it's critical to put this predictive and the smart technology. And you can get so much benefit from doing that. It's basically like running a city with traffic lights or without traffic lights. So it is mandatory or it, it brings a lot of value that I get it pretty easily. But where do you get your data from? Do you have a partnership with a local weather company or do you do that yourself? Is it data that is open source, freely available to everyone? How can I imagine that? Your weather data, where do you get that from? Yeah, so we're not weather forecasters or we're not a meteorological agency in ourselves. So what we do is we'll partner with various different meteorological areas in different countries and sometimes multiple providers in countries. Some providers are good at giving really short term, maybe up to six hours rainfall forecast. Some are good at the more longer term stuff. Some are good at hyper local. So it's by combining various different weather forecast providers all into the mix, all into one system, and then being able to pull out the correct information for the correct asset at the correct time in real time and be able to do that quickly and make calculations on that quickly. So we're not experts in predicting the weather, but we are experts in putting various different prediction sources together, putting our expertise on top of them and taking that information and making it relevant to stormwater and drainage networks. Okay, so that's very clear. Which brings me to my first part of the question, which is the sensors on the network, because you, you have this data of, of, of the weather and the other part of the data is what you, you get from the network. How common is it to have sensors on the networks? It's really everywhere in the UK you would see those sensors, everywhere in Europe, everywhere in the world, or is it really the highest end utility that have their networks fully equipped with sensors? I suppose it all depends. It comes down to how many sensors do you need to make a system like this work. And the bottom line is not as much as what people think they need. There's a real drive over the last number of years to put more and more and more sensoring into uh, stormwater and wastewater networks. It's not always the right thing to do. You need to, first of all, understand the data that your existing sensors are giving you. So what existing sensors do you have in a network? So a wastewater network is made up of several different components. So there'll, there'll be pipes, there'll be pumping stations, and there'll be usually outfall points or combined sewer overflows or sewer overflow points where you discharge from. Usually the pumping stations will be censored. So there'll be some censoring in the pumping stations because the utility needs to know how the pumps are operating, if they're deteriorating, if they're running well and not running well. So this is the first point you will have monitored. So this is, this is a basic and this is in pretty much all utilities. The next step then is the CSOs, the combined out, the, the outflow points across the network. And usually utilities will have some censoring at their overflow points in most instances. If not, they will have a plan over the next number of years to put censoring in there. Because if they're going to have some discharge to the environment, they need to know the regulator or the environmental agency of the country will usually want to understand how much they're going to discharge, where they're going to discharge, if they're discharging, so that they understand if there will be an, a consequence to the environment of the storm discharge. And then the really sophisticated utilities might supplement this with some sewer level sensing around different areas, particularly maybe areas where they've had some blockages or areas where there's had some issues in the network. Our system can work once we've got the pumping station. So we can work at basically level one censoring. Level two censoring, it's going to optimize. You're going to be able to do more. And level three is the all singing, all dancing system where you could really, really develop out your benefits. So you mentioned your system, and that's now the part where reading your case studies, reading your documentation, 
I wasn't able to understand exactly how that works because on that same microphone, I had uh, an interview with uh, with Kendu. I don't know if you know them. Uh, Kendu is um, putting some sensors in the network and then they do modeling. And from what I understand from your technology, you're not modeling. You do something which, according to what I read, is even better. So how do you do to process this data if you're not modeling? Yeah, oh, that's really interesting. So I have a confession to make. So my background is actually hydraulic modeling. So that's what I did for a lot of the time I was working as a consultant. So I've come from the industry of hydraulic modeling. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so the big difficulty that hydraulic modeling has is in terms of trying to apply that to real-time information, it's very, very difficult to run the complex hydraulic models that are required in real time to actually give us accurate information in real time so that we can make operational decisions. Because an operational decision will need to be made, you know, if you're making it in 15 minutes time, that might be too late because, the, you know, in a pumping station, typically it'll turn on maybe after 10 minutes and turn off after five minutes. So you could miss two cycles of the pump if you're 15 minutes or half an hour doing your calculation or your collaboration. As well as that, I think most people in the industry understand that hydraulic models are, they're inherently inaccurate and it's difficult to calibrate them continually in real time to make sure they're always calibrated. So what we do is we actually use machine learning as an alternative. If you're looking to make operational decisions as to how you should run your network in real time, we believe that machine learning is a better solution than a detailed hydraulic model to do this. So the reason for this is you take the actual data from the actual site, from the sensors in the site, and we use this, we build a machine learning model around the actual data, also using the hyperlocal forecast. So a time series of the information that you're getting from the sensor, time series of the forecast information, also, critically, any other influencing data that you think might be influencing the level of the sewer or the pattern of the sewer, like local borehole level for perhaps because you might have some groundwater infiltration into a sewer network, like maybe a local river, river network. And I can tell you some fascinating examples of where we've added different information into the feature set of the machine learning. And we were able to really get our prediction window really, really, really accurate on the back of that. The theory here is that if you have a sensor in the network, you should use this sensor not to collaborate a hydraulic model, but actually to predict what's going to happen at that censored point based on the data you get from that sensor and some form of sophisticated calculation like an AI model or machine learning model. So really that's the genesis. I'm, I'm not saying we don't need hydraulic models as an industry. If you want to build another hundred houses on the outskirts and you want to understand how your whole network is going to be affected, hydraulic models are really good for that. And that, that's really what they're required for. If you want to change the behavior of your infrastructure operationally in real time, we feel strongly and we've seen the results that machine learning models with sensors are a better way to do that. That's our fundamental principle of the offering we're bringing into the utility sector. So the data is gathered, is reconciliated with this weather forecast data, feeds into machine learning and artificial intelligence. But where does all of that happen? Is it a cloud platform? Is it um, on-premise? 
Yeah, so most often we can do on-premise solutions, but most often we'll do it in the cloud. We'll recommend there's huge advantages to your data processing, to being able to scale up different data processing applications in real time and then scale back down again. We would recommend strongly that you would do a cloud solution, but it's not mandatory. We can also do on-premise solutions if required. So data gets collected to the cloud and the cloud sends then a recommendation how much of actuation do you find on the networks today? Because you, you have a recommendation there. There would be two outcomes. Whether you uh, have a network which is actuated, then you can directly move and you can benefit at the maximum from this reactivity that you have through your system. Or if you have a recommendation to an operator that whether pushes a button or maybe has to go uh, somewhere with his car and open or close a valve. So um how is it today? How, how much actuation do you find on the networks? As much as sensors or e even less, even more? Yeah, certainly much less than sensors. I think the, the application of the actuation... That would have been my guess, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the application of the actuation across the network is not... Uh, there is certainly some standout examples of some utilities who have that and have it working really well. But in general, that's not something that's practiced by utilities, you know, generally around the world. I think it's something that's coming. Utilities are becoming open, you know, all the factors that everybody understands, climate change, greater populations, constrained budgets. They're pushing utilities to have to trial new types of solutions to get more out of the existing infrastructure that they have. Um, and something like predictive control, valves and actuators are, are critical to that. But you don't have to go to that step to get the benefit. We've done projects like blockage prediction, real-time blockage prediction using this technology, using the forecast and the machine learning. So where you would be developing a prediction for each asset you'd be giving a threshold, an operating threshold for each asset. And then if you go outside your operating threshold, so if there's an anomalous level or anomalous flow in the network, so something that's not expected in the network, then that's highlighting to you that there might be a problem there. And we've been able to get really accurate results with uh, a case study we did with Wessex Water. We're also rolling that out with a couple of other utilities, but Wessex Water are a big utility in the southwest of England. We were able to identify running for three months across 3,000 kilometers of sewers, we identified 60 blockages in real time that they were able to clear the pipes out and ensure we didn't have a pollution incident. So we were detecting the early formations of blockages by identifying anomalous flows in the network. Actually, um, that's very interesting, this blockage story, because I have to confess, I had no clue that the problem was thus important. I read in your documentation again that solely in the UK, it's 100 million pounds every year to remove those blockages. And from your case study, I did a quite a stupid statistics, but I found out that it was roughly one blockage for three kilometers of pipes every year. So it sounds to me like a huge problem. And what I read as well is that you were able to detect those blockages 14 days before they really happen. So how much of the blockages can you eliminate in percentage? Yeah, so this is all correct. And I think that 100 million figure is actually from a couple of years ago. So no doubt that has increased because the problem is continually increasing. So this is, this is a huge problem for utilities, the blockage problem. Uh, if you go on most utilities... Actually, why? Why, why, is, it why is it increasing? 
so uh, both. <laughs> yeah. So really, it's there's two factors that contribute to about 90 percent of the sewer blockages. The first one is wet wipes, where these non-degradable wipes are being used more regularly. I read a, a figure today that last year, I think there was eight billion wipes sold, individual wipes sold in the UK. So all of those are being used. Some of them then are being flushed down the toilet and they don't degrade like toilet paper might degrade and they stay in the sewer. When that then is combined with the oils and the fats coming off of cooking and the fats that are okay to go down the drain, but once they actually hit the sewers, they cool down and they form a solid. So this all melds together and it forms like a rock-like substance in the sewers. And that's what you call a fatberg. And that's what's causing a lot of the issues is these fatbergs. These, these, they look grotesque when you see them, but they're essentially like the big, big rock formation in the sewer pipes, which obviously is a huge problem because it's, a, it's essentially a big blockage. So what the utilities are trying to do is to get to these blockage formations early before they turn into these big fatberg formations and actually get in and get them moved on and jet them out so that they get through the network. Because if they start to form in the pipe, then you've got a big problem. So understanding the correct flow, doing really accurate flow windows or or level thresholds in the sewers, monitoring them, using machine learning to understand when you're going outside of an expected threshold or, or outside of an expected level. It's a really, really valuable tool now that the utilities are starting to understand the potential and the benefits around. So it's good because you defined the fatbergs. I was really wondering what the fatbergs was. Now I have a clear definition. It's crazy when you think of it. Eight billion wet wipes only in the UK. If you're listening to this and you still flush wet wipes in your toilets, uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how we as uh, professionals shall repeat it, but don't do that. <laughs> just, just don't. Um, exactly. So you find out about these blockages 14 days in advance. You can clear them and. How much of them can you detect? All of them? 90% of them? 50% of them? What's your accuracy there? Yeah, so because we've developed out this technology with the machine learning capabilities and because we're using the hyper-local rainfall forecast, and we've been at this since 2011, believe it or not. That was when the Queensland floods happened. That's when I started to, to develop out this technology. In the projects that we've run with utilities, we actually haven't missed a single blockage. We've got every single blockage right. We've got 95% accuracy on our our alerts, or maybe 94, 95, something like this. And then you're talking about 5% false positives. So what we're finding is that you need to have very high levels of accuracy or else the operations crews and the utilities lose faith in the solution. So every time you send a message to the operation crew that you need to go to a certain site at a certain location, they need to find something when they get there or else they start to say, oh, this machine learning doesn't work or this technology isn't good. So it's really you have to have that level of accuracy or else you won't get buy-in from the operational staff. And what we found is we were running proof of concepts with different utilities and we would actually get a phone call at the end of the proof of concept from the maintenance or the operational crew that would say, please don't turn this off. We like this. This is, this is working for us. Finally, we've got a solution that's able to get us to the blockages so we don't have to deal with the big fat bergs down the line. Please keep this running. And, and, and the utility would ask us, please keep this going. And, and to me, that proves the value of a proof of concept when the operational crews are the ones that are asking you, you know, this is working. We shouldn't take this out. That's for the networks. 
if I go back to the attenuation tanks, if I got it right, what you do there is that, and I mean, you are on the Don't Waste Water podcast, so uh, trust me, I, I like the idea. It's about not wasting water. You can reuse a part of that water because you know that the storm event is, is gone. So there's no new rain for the next two days. So why not use that water to uh, use it as gray water to flush the toilet or non-potable reuse? How does that work? Yeah, so that's so we're jumping all over the place. So, so this is uh, uh, <laughs> this is the first the first solution that we described was putting a smart valve or a smart pump linked to a forecast platform into a storm tank or a flood tank. So let me give you an example of a project. So we've got some really fascinating projects being installed currently and more coming as we go across this year in the Netherlands. So the Netherlands, certain cities, we've got a big project in Assen and a big project in Assendal. In these cities, this is with our partner company, Waven, who do the flood tanks. With this solution, Waven are putting and retrofitting in these new flood tanks into these cities. Uh, the municipality has understood that there's an increased flood risk. So they're trying to minimize and make the city safer by installing these flood attenuation structures and tanks in, in different parts of the city. So we've come up with this solution that we control the level in this tank based on our smart valve. So we can predict what water's coming when it's coming. And what we're doing is we're recycling water out of this tank because now we can hold water in the tank. But if there's a big flood event coming, we can release it and drain it down and then we can the next time we get some small rainfall we can hold the water in the tank again we're able to use this water to actually water the vegetation in the town center all around these cities so instead of during the summer uh, when there's a potential hose pipe ban on that all the vegetation dies and all the nice flowers that exist around the center of the town now we're able to water them from the tank that has been installed so the tank is not only increasing the or mitigating the flood risk it's also providing the ability to recycle and keep all your greenery in the area green sometimes it's been linked to the local public toilets in the area so there's all different sort of things if, if we put it in on an individual development for a particular building we can actually reuse the water for drinking or for non-drinking water so for uh, toilet flushing or for cleaning or for irrigating the, the plants uh, as i've described so it's about being smart with the water we're using. There's lots of benefits here because this stormwater otherwise would have ended up in a combined sewer, which might have contributed to pollution. It would have probably have ended up, if not been discharged in, in a pollution event, it would have in, ended up in the wastewater treatment works where it would need to be treated. But instead of needed to be treated, it's actually providing value by allowing it to recycle some water back in the network. It just makes so much sense on so many levels to actually implement this tire of technology now that it exists. So I know that it, it sounds a bit like I'm I'm dragging you left and right, and I'm sorry for that. But uh, <laughs> I'm really curious. It's a fascinating field. But of course, you don't want to treat all of that water in your wastewater treatment plant. But I was discussing that with uh, with Marie Lonet, actually. Hi, Marie, if you listen to that. And uh, she made some some studies and some research on micropollutants, which would be given back to the environment through this... Um, storm attenuation tanks and what she found out is that there are waves the the first backwash of a parking lot is heavily polluted i mean heavily is full of those micro pollutants whereas the next 20 minutes of a rain event is much less sensible to this pollution so if you were able to say okay let's take this part let's 
store it there. We cannot put it directly back to the network because there's a storm event ongoing right now. But when the storm event is over, let's push back this part of the water which is polluted and let's reuse the rest in gray water. So you could really do a separation. And when I saw in your explanation video that your, your attenuation tanks are basically split in two, I thought, if it's split in two, why not split it in three or in four and have these different waves covered that way? Does it sound utopic or is it like marginal gains and not worth it? Or what's your thought process here? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting suggestion, very interesting solution. I think the beauty of this technology is that it allows us to explore and really push the boundaries here and things like this, because what we now have is we now have a dynamic control system that's installed in the flood tank. So really, we can control the flood tank in whatever way we want, and we can retrofit that. We can change that by altering a bit of software so that we run it in a slightly different sequence. For example, we pulse the valves open every now and again to make sure we get some movement of water. Water in the tank to provide to avoid you know water sitting there in one position for too long and, and avoid those issues so if there was a requirement to drain off some of the first flush and then hold the water back and then later release it back in so it could eventually get to the treatment works it's all absolutely possible and it's the beauty of putting a system in there that can be dynamic and remotely controlled using software is that you know if you put a big concrete tank in the ground and you walk away it's there forever and it can only perform in that way it can't change its behavior so if climate change changes changes the flood pattern or the, the discharge pattern the software can change with it and then we can keep the tank constant and updated and it's just a technology that exists to do that now which we're putting into the into these tanks you mentioned this reference in in the netherlands and you mentioned your partnership with with waven you are currently distributed in in 20 countries right let's move to the business side of things first what's your business model what are you selling right now is it um, a service is it a fee based on on the installation of a software and then a service fee how, how does that work primarily we're a SaaS company so it will be a software as a service charge so that's primarily how we work if we need to put in a valve a smart valve there will be a charge for putting in some hardware only if it's required if the hardware is not required we're not pushing the hardware we're all about the software but sometimes if the utility or the development doesn't have that hardware themselves we might have to help them and provide it to them there can be a hardware charge if they need the hardware but primarily what we're trying to focus on is the software side of things we see ourselves as a software solution that can do prediction better than anybody else in the industry and that allows us to do all these other technologies like the automated control of the valve to improve the flow of water and hold back water to predict blockages and wastewater networks to do real-time control for utilities so it's it's the software that enables all this and the real smarts are in the software the hardware is just a facilitator so that we can we can put the control mechanism in there but how you control that is where the brains are and that's where all, all of our art our, our ip is And what about this distribution in, in this 20 countries? Um, is it you directly? Is it through partnerships? How do you expand internationally? Well, we deal with some countries ourselves, and then we have a deal with Waven to go around a lot of countries around Europe. Waven are obviously a big presence. They're a, a big, and their parent company, RBR, are really environmentally focused. And that's where the alignment really came really well, because our mission is to improve drainage networks so, so that we can improve the environment. And that really struck a chord with the parent company of Waven, who are Arbia, and they're a Mexican company. So 
that distribution happens with Wavin's sales network that exists around various different countries. Now, some countries will go to ourselves. Some countries we've got people working on our working in ourselves. We're very hands-on in the UK. We do have rainwater harvesting partners in the UK, but it, with the utilities, we're very hands-on ourselves in the UK. We're obviously very hands-on ourselves in Ireland, and then various different countries. We've got different models, but a lot of it is through this Wavin partnership model, which has been, a, from our point of view, a fantastic success. I was surprised. I have to say, positively surprised because of the radical transparency aspect of that, which I really love in companies. But to see from your the, the pitch of your company on that you mentioned that you are backed by venture capital. And I'm always wondering when I see companies backed by venture capital inside the water industry and had several of them on that microphone, I'm always wondering if hypergrowth is something which is achievable within um, the water industry. So I would be interesting here to have your take. Yeah, um, we are uh, backed by venture capitalist financing. So, I mean, it's really exciting because it gives us the ability to scale quicker than what we would otherwise be able to do. So we've installed systems, we've tested systems, we've proven the concept in a number of countries and a number of different concepts that we've all discussed across this podcast. Now we have the ability to take those concepts that have worked across a number of countries and quickly scale them into, into a lot of different countries at the same time. So it's a, it's a really, really exciting time. And, and we're aligned really well with our investors because, you know, within the, the investment funds, the people that we deal with are, believe it or not, civil engineers. Now, they may not have worked as civil engineers for a long time, but that's where their background was. That's where they've come from through education. And that's where they started their own careers. And a lot of those, these people are entrepreneurs themselves that have had successful companies, you know, in this sphere. So they really get what we're doing. From day one, they've bought into our vision for what we want to do. And, you know, seeing that there is a huge environmental problem, there's a huge, huge area of growth to improve sewer networks and drainage networks, stormwater networks, you know, and that's the primary thing that drives us. It's the primary thing that drives them. They've also got an environmental slant, which is also a very positive thing from our point of view, that they do care about the environment. They are investing in, in companies that can improve the environment. And I think we're both on, on, on a really aligned path and we're both going, really going after the market in terms of trying to bring the solutions out to as many countries as we can and really push ourselves forward. You mentioned that they are aligned with your vision, but what is your vision? Where do you see yourself in, let's say, two years, five years on the long run? Yeah, so I, I think really what we're trying to do is we're trying to improve drainage networks. So wastewater and stormwater are networks. We need to, Our mission is to improve the performance of them. And we do this using technologies like hyperlocal weather forecasting, machine learning. So really getting out and being able to improve as many drainage networks and wastewater networks as we possibly can so we can save as much water as we possibly can take as much water out of the combined sewer network prevent as many overflows and pollution incidents as we possibly can in as many countries as we can really make an environmental difference so that we can we can really say and look back in five years time that we did something we made a change we took some technology we applied it into drainage and we were able to improve the performance of drainage networks and improve the environment. So it's not only a vision, it's also a mission somehow. How many people are you right now within the company? At the moment, we are between 15 and 20. So we're growing very quickly. 
So maybe last year we were we were 10, 7, the year before that we were 4 or 5. So we're growing really, really, really quickly. And with the clients that we're, we're signing on every week, we're growing quicker and quicker. The challenge that we're having is getting getting people as quick as we possibly can. That's our challenge. The clients seem to want our services. They're interested in what we do. But we, we need to be able to deliver for the big utility clients that we're taking on. So we're constantly trying to push ourselves forward in that respect. You, you mentioned that um, once you have something which works, you, you deploy it in other countries. So basically, once you have your, your product market fit around your solutions, then you can deploy it to other countries. Is it all going to happen through Waven? Or do you also plan to have in a close to midterm future, I don't know, a, a US office or an Australian office would make about sense given your, your path? Yeah, it's uh, something very much on my horizon is the Australian opportunity and, and tackling that because of my history and the company coming from Australia initially. It won't all be done through Wavin. Wavin have great coverage across Europe for the storm tanks and the flood tanks. But the strategy will be to look for other partners that can help us, certainly other partners across America that can help us. And we're talking to a number of those at the moment. Uh, and similarly in Australia, we're really keen to get in and, and get active in the Australian market. We think we have a solution. They've got all the same problems across Australia and New Zealand. So we think that there's a really good fit there for what we do. So part of it will be through additional partnerships to, to supplement the Wavin partnership. And part of it will be through direct outreach. We will do a certain amount directly in these countries as well. I think stay close to a market. It's really important to have the representation from your own company in those those markets you're interested in targeting. And now you know the, the golden last question. I had a very honest answer to that question sometimes. Some other times people just told me, uh, they don't know and because sometimes they didn't know and sometimes they didn't want to tell and some other times they told me no that's a stupid question so I, up to you really all the answers are possible do you want to build the next big thing in this water industry or do you like building and at some point you want to exit and to start building something else um i think i i like building i want to take this company forward but we need to make sure that what we do gives the company the best chance to to use this technology. It's not it's not the company. It's the ability to use this technology and to take this technology to the market. So whether we have to do that through a merger or through acquisitions or how we do that, but it's what I'm really passionate about is taking this technology. I can see the benefits of it. I can see what it can do now, and it's bringing that into this industry. This industry is you know it's. True education, it's been my whole career, is working in drainage and stormwater and, and wastewater networks. And I really see that there's a big difference can be made from using this technology. So however that happens quickest and at the biggest scale, that's what I'm interested in. And if that's us taking more funding and really pushing forward further, if it's us merging with other companies or it's us acquiring companies or if it's us going in under the umbrella of another company that can really promise us that growth and get and make the biggest difference, we're open to all those suggestions. But I'm just so excited about moving this technology and getting it out there now. So you're following the mission while you believe in what you're doing. So I think that's a good combo. Makes about sense. Brian, would I propose you is to switch to uh, the rapid fire questions. That's okay for you? Yep. Perfect. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in that section, I try to keep the, the question short and I'd be happy if you keep the, the, the answer short, but I'm not cutting the microphone, so don't worry. Um, <laughs> my first question will be, 
what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? Yeah, so the I think one of the really, really exciting projects we've worked on is the project we've completed with Wessex Water. Uh, the one that we've completed with Wessex Water to me would be a really exciting one where we, we've been able to predict blockages. We haven't missed a single blockage in the network that we've been working on. And it's it's transformational for their maintenance crews. They're moving to a, a condition-based maintenance approach, which is fundamentally changing and improving how they're how they're able to respond to these blockage issues. I think that's that's been a really practical, exciting project. Okay, let me cheat here right away. I just have one number which I didn't understand in this case study when I read it. It's minus ninety six percent control room alert. What does that mean? So how the utility is working is at the moment they've got all their sensors out in the network. So they've got their pumping station sensors, they've got some CSO outflow sensors. And during periods of heavy rainfall, basically what happens is their control room lights up like a Christmas tree because all of the alerts go during rainfall and the entire control room, you know, becomes unmanageable to a point where a lot of utilities have to silence for a day and just put all their alert, turn all their alerts off for a day because they can't understand where the maintenance crews are meant to go and where they're not meant to go because they can't understand what's a genuine alert or what's just normal high level in the pipes because of rainfall. And what we're doing is we're using our machine learning to determine when is a high level okay because it's just rainfall and it's within the operating parameters or when is a high level not okay because it's showing something out of sequence. So if the pipe is usually during this density and intensity of rainfall, duration of rainfall fills to 50%, but, but our machine learning has a range then of 55 to 45% that we should be within for that sewer. If the sewer goes to 70% or 80%, then there's a problem because something is happening in the sewer that shouldn't be. And that's where the ops crew should go, not to the other 50 sewers that are behaving in the normal, practical way that they just fill up and empty. So it's we were able to turn off or silence 95% of their alarms and leave on the 5% that are critical where they need to get out or there's going to be pollution that shouldn't that could be avoided. Okay, all clear. So, sorry, I'm the one that sidetracked you, but that was intriguing to me and I'm glad you made it much more clearer. What's your favorite part of your current job? I think it's seeing the benefits, seeing the rewards that we get when the team comes together. So we had a project today uh, where we got really, really good feedback from a utility client that they were really happy with something that we were doing, a piece of work that we had provided to them. And there was four people involved in that project, all doing a small bit different in terms of, of, of their own piece of what they were doing. All the four people came together to provide this one solution that had our client basically saying, this is absolutely what we need to do. It's helped us and it's saved us money. It's the reward that we get when the team is working well together to achieve the mission. What is the trend to watch out for in the water industry? Oh, well, I, I think I can't, uh, I, I can't preach for the last uh, 40 minutes about smart networks, smart drainage, forecast prediction control. We say more than real-time control. We say forecast predictive control because real-time control is still, it's still behind time. If you can do predictive control, that's what we're preaching. And I think that's the area where there's huge benefits coming down the line. What is the thing you care the most when you're working on a new project? And what is the one you care the least? Oh, uh, that's, that's a really difficult question. Um, what we care the most about a new project is delivering 
a positive outcome for the client so that we so so that we can help them to reach their goal be that financial or be that environmental so if we're trying to to provide a system in for a client that can actually reduce pollution and or save them money at the same time so that would be the the most important thing the least important thing i don't know that's too difficult for me to answer Surprisingly, that's the, the most common answer I get to this question. <laughs> it's hard to say what you care the least. Uh, I get it. <laughs> Do you have sources to recommend to keep up with the water and wastewater market trends? Um, I think uh, nothing in particular. I think the conferences, the industry conferences are fantastic. So I went to Weftech in Chicago last year. Well, not last year, the year before when, when it was possible to travel. And that was just such a fantastic experience to see all the different companies just under one roof with all their different solutions, all challenging different problems, coming with different mentalities. I highly, highly recommend Weftech. Also Aquatech in Amsterdam, a fantastic show, a fantastic uh, presentation and really, really, really good. And seek out people like Swan Forum and people like Imagine H2O, who are the, who are the groups that bring these innovative technologies together and showcase them to the industry. They'd be really the places that I'd be looking out. And, and, and other than that, you can also always check out Storm Harvester's LinkedIn page because we're very active and we're really trying to show what we're doing to everybody. Well placed. <laughs> Would you have someone to recommend that we should definitely invite as soon as possible on that same microphone? Oh, uh, very interesting. Um, so the European product manager for stormwater with Waven is a man called Gertjo van Dijk from the Netherlands, who is a real advocate. And, and Waven have done some really interesting stuff, yes, with what their partnership with Storm Harvester, but also in enabling more vegetation and more trees using their crates and their planter boxes. They're able to leave the vegetation to breed and to get the moisture around the vegetation without causing root damage. They've got a number of solutions like that that are real innovative and real positive. I think he's a, a really interesting person to that has a real good aspect and a real good vision on this. And other than that, you know, some of the utility managers and leaders that we work with are really, really innovative and they've actually at the cold face of using this and all lots of other technology there's a utility called wessex water i've mentioned before where we've done a lot of really good work and uh, jody knight manages their marketplace or he's involved with some of their marketplace work and he is fantastic advocate for solutions that will improve the performance even if they're very innovative that will uh, will improve the utilities uh, performance so jody is a a real strong candidate i would feel and maybe hurt show as well thanks for the double recommendation if people want to follow up with you just uh, after this interview you mentioned your your company page on linkedin i'll put the, the link to your linkedin to your your web page i was also impressed to see on your web page the number of case studies you had uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting to, to get a, a better grasp on, on what you're doing. And uh, I saw that all of you on your About page, uh, all of the people that, that are listed are directly listed with their LinkedIn. So I guess uh, that must be a, a medium of choice. Yeah, very much. Do you have any other place that you would recommend to, to link to? 
Uh, I think our LinkedIn is our strongest, uh, uh, the, the strongest one at this moment. And we also have a Facebook page, which we're very active on. Some people uh, like using that platform. Other than that, I mean, just I, I think just LinkedIn, keep an eye on our blog, on our website as well. We're quite active in that. And then we're always trying to add case studies onto our website. So keeping an eye on our case studies and our website also are very interested. And my personal LinkedIn, I'm always very active on there. That's a, I, I find it a really good tool to engage with other industry professionals. And, and share thoughts on, on, on different things. So uh, my personal LinkedIn, Brian Maloney on LinkedIn is, is also a good one. Awesome. So I'm, I'll put all the all the links, of course, in the in the show notes, like every time. Brian, it's been a pleasure. I'm slightly over time. You know, I, I'm French. I have to be uh, not really uh, accurate with the, with the times I give, but um, I hope it's still fine for you. It was a pleasure. Um, and I hope to have the chance in a couple of years to check on, on your path and the path of your company. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.